0: This morning's scripture reading is from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. Many of you know um, Maggie McCormick. Uh, In fact, you can keep her in your prayers. She's having foot surgery and won't be around for the next couple months as a result. Um, Her husband, Kevin, is an elder in our church. Uh, Both of them are are just dear friends to many of us, uh, fellow saints and British. And often when I'm around Maggie, uh, she likes to rib me for being American. Uh, Even though I try to suss it out with her, I use keen instead of like, and I've made the full conversion to calling football the sport involving one's feet primarily, which is a big step (laughs) for an American. But she still takes pleasure in reminding me that I am a Yankee. And as such, loud, proud, and overly expressive. As I try to always form a retort in my mind to this this little barb she likes to give me, uh, I get stuck. Because as long as Americans have invented reality TV, and Duck Dynasty is still on the air. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to make an argument back about. Well, we're not. We're not too vulnerable or overly expressive. What are you talking about? We just have our whole lives taped before audiences. It's great. So, recently, she did query me on the subject of why is it that Americans are so obsessed with British royalty? She said, you know, my, she said "My American friends." They're tracking the birth, the name, all the variables of Prince William and Kate's child far more closely than my friends in the UK. And I think that is a fairly true statement, according to various media coverages and, and whatnot. And as I pondered the question, I gave a couple answers. I don't know if you ever do that. You give a couple answers and you kind of settle on the right answer. I offered sort of a more serious thought that I do wonder if there is within each of us an impulse or a desire to live under a monarchy. And in fact, when I read up on on the sort of the Western obsession, not just to America, but the Western obsession with Prince George Alexander Lewis, most sociologists and psychologists used two words over and over again as explanations for this kind of obsession. Those words were fairy tale and fantasy. A fairy tale and a fantasy for which we sort of long. Fairy tales and fantasies exist because there is some real desire that nothing in this world quite matches. And so we love to read them for your parents to our kids. Yet we know in the back of our minds why they wish and they hope and they wonder. The harsh reality of this world is. Nothing really matches the climax of that fairy tale. Despite this, though, real desire for a monarchy, for the fairy tale come true, all but four countries in this world claim not to be monarchies, but democracies. Why is this? Because everyone wants to be king. Uh, David said in, in Psalm 2, but this very simply, Saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. In other words, the King of kings. And against His anointed. Hinting towards a king who would establish His throne upon the earth. Nobody wants one king. Unless, of course, it's them, right? We all say, well, we don't want a king. We don't want one ruler. But when we get power in our lives, it's nice, isn't it? You get some authority. You get some responsibility that comes with it, some perks. No one wants to be king unless, of course, it's them. Democracy literally means ruled by the people. And with each vote, you have a little say. You have a little rule. You have a little kingdom. We recognize that no one can be trusted with total rule, so each person is given a little rule to elect officials who are assigned sort of little realms. And they work together. And yet, there is something we love and deeply respect about a premier, a president, a prime minister, rising as a singular figure and standing up for what is right and what is good. Even when it's unpopular. So even as we say in one breath, each of us wants to hold on to a little rule, culminating in rule by the people because each of us has corruption within us, simultaneously we recognize we are powerless. And we just wish for one king to whom we can submit. This is representative by that phrase, if you've ever said this, "Would well, just tell me what to do. Alright, if you're married, you know that phrase, right? Or you make make that statement, I wish, I wish somebody would tell me what I should do. But really, there's no one around who I can trust has my best interests in mind. Who has my good in mind. And we think about God. Is God that king? God has always reigned in the heavens and over the earth. Psalm 103 Verse 19 says, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Okay. But such beyondness has always caused us to relegate the always benevolent king to the realm of fantasy, fairy tale, right? Above the earth, beyond the earth, over the earth. Such a king isn't possible in this world. It's only and always in the world beyond us kind of looking over us. And that's what deism came from. It's an understandable thought. That God looks over the world. He started the world, but then sort of just looks over it. Until Jesus of Nazareth speaks these words, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Royal fairy tale and fantasy puts on a robe and sandals. It stands right in front of you talking. Have you ever been burned in your life by people in charge telling you what to do? And yet, still find yourself saying, perhaps to no one in particular, I wish I could find someone I can trust who tell me what to do. Friends, the words of Jesus Christ are for you. He'll tell us a bit about the kingdom of God and how to enter the kingdom. And then he hints at how we might join in the advancing of this kingdom. Now, Jesus' emphasis will be upon the nowness and the nearness of the kingdom, which should elicit in us a nower and nearer response. It's here. The time is now to also respond. First, we'll talk about the kingdom. As he talks about it, kingdom never defined. Jesus never defines the kingdom, but he frequently describes it. And we'll see some of those descriptions throughout the Gospel of Mark, as we're throughout the four Gospels. In fact, Jesus gives approximately 30 descriptions and over 80 references to the kingdom, I might count, which, as one commentator pointed out, should clue us into the idea that Jesus was pretty concerned about the ideas of the kingdom that were out there. The conceptions of the kingdom. What would this kingdom look like? How does it it affect me? How does it affect our people? There are three basic kingdom conceptions that were out there, in some ways still are. There is the political conception of the kingdom. That is that the king, God the king, would institute an immediate earthly theocracy populated by God's people. A theocracy on this earth now. And yet Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Hmm. He must not want to become Caesar. The high king, the Lord over all the earth, as it was known in Roman times. And also we see in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 12, the encouragement from God in the New Testament to submit to governing authorities not named Jesus Christ. Yahweh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we can cross that out. What about spiritual? This is the idea that the king would defeat the spiritual forces around us and rule the invisible realm. The realm we can't see, but is real nevertheless. And yet, Jesus says here, the kingdom is at hand. I mean, take that literally. He's just saying, look, you can reach out and touch the kingdom because it's here. Wherever God is acknowledged and submitted to as king, there is the kingdom. So the tension here is that the kingdom is already, but it's not yet. It's already here, and yet it's not yet. And so we get glimpses of, or windows into, A world beyond this world. In the 1994 uh, Disney film, The Lion King, you may have heard of it. It It's pretty big. Uh, A king named Mufasa shows the vast expanse of the Pride Lands to his son, Simba. And he goes on to say, our kingdom, son, our kingdom is wherever the light hits. Exactly. Exactly. The light of the invisible spiritual kingdom of God is broken through with Jesus and continues to break through today. So, when Jesus was on trial at the end of his life, he answers the interrogation of an earthly king, saying, John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, spatially where we are right now, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But he says, My kingdom is not from this world. So, on first blush, you might say, Well, there's no correlation then between God's kingdom and this world now. But Jesus Christ never says his kingdom is not in this world. Prepositions are very important. He says his kingdom did not originate from this world. Nor does it share the qualities of this world, the characteristics of this world. As we'll see, Jesus' kingdom doesn't come with all this sort of power and pomp and circumstance. In fact, his kingdom, every time it breaks into this world, looks different from this world. Looks different from worldly kingdoms. It's like a patch of light. Another conception of the kingdom is that it's in the future. It's, it's eternal. It's eternity. One day, all things will be made right. Justice will prevail in everything. Everyone will be healed and everything will be healed. And all will be perfect in the future kingdom still to come. And yet, Jesus says the time is fulfilled here, right? And so the tension is that we are in the presence of the future. I know that might just blow your mind. And I'm not trying to throw mind riddles out to you. But that is attention. We are in the presence of the future. People are being made right with their Creator. Justice is coming to those who receive none. There is healing of the sick. There are glimpses and hints of perfection that all occur in this kingdom come. And we'll see this even more so in a couple weeks. But in his book, uh, Christ in Time, a Swiss theologian named Oscar Coleman writes of the Normandy invasion of 1944. It's Normandy invasion in relation to the end of World War II. He says that that invasion known as D-Day was necessary before V-Day, the actual moment of complete victory for the Allies. The invasion of the king, his death, his resurrection are like D-Day. What we have here in the Gospels described is like D-Day. Jesus come. His second coming is like V-Day. And so we live in the times between assured of victory because the King has come and yet we're still fighting the battle because the kingdom is still coming. There's a tension there. It's not like two different kingdoms but a continuum. In fact, Revelation 11.15 tells us the kingdom of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the earth will become the kingdom of the Lord. It's it's this continuum, this transformation. The idea then is for God to so advance His kingdom through us that the remodeling project will be minimal, right? That the changes will be minimal in, in, in one respect. It's not so drastic because more and more the kingdom of this world is becoming and looking like the kingdom that's still to come when Jesus will reign forever and ever. That's the idea. Why didn't Jesus just make this simpler and go ahead and define his kingdom like in one sentence, right? Merriam-Webster style. Because he means for us to know, to love, and submit to its king. The king embodies the kingdom. In fact, with with the exception of the only apocalyptic book of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, the Old Testament has no reference to this kingdom of God, per se, but only to God as the king. And yet we get tons of references to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Why? Because the entire New Testament centers around the arrival of the king. It is the arrival of the king has brought the kingdom to this earth. The fantasy and the fairy tale of eternity have put on robe and sandals, and he stands in front of us, focusing on the king. He is the center. As it stands, without the kingdom of God, the world is then ruled by someone else. We would have heard this a few months ago when we went through 1 John. 1 John 5.19. We know that we are from God. Those who trust Christ are from God. And yet, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Evil one meaning, yes. Satan? It's him. And he's awful. And he exercises power in this world through lies. Through four primary ways. Through lies through demonic influence, through invisible powers you don't even see that exert influence upon us and upon the world every day. Decay and death. And finally, number four, through sin. Through rebellion. It's no wonder then how the king, the king of kings, starts to take back territory when he arrives. Listen, as we, we're going to see this in Mark in the next few weeks, how he begins to take back the kingdom. Compare this to how Satan exercises power. First, we'll see that Jesus teaches truth to combat those lies. He starts to take back the kingdom. Look in verse 21 of chapter 1. They went into Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, not as one who had scribes. Well, no, like the scribes. Verse 27, they were all amazed. So they questioned themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. His authority breaks in to the current kingdom through his teaching, through teaching truth. He also takes back the kingdom by defeating demonic opposition. We go on here, verse 25 of chapter 1. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of this man. He defeats demonic opposition. And so he shows he's taking back the kingdom. He heals decay and death. So we go, keep going on in chapter 1, we see he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And frankly, a whole city comes to him. And he just heals, he heals, he heals. Spends a whole day doing this. And finally, number four, he forgives sin. We see in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But yes, friends, see, God has taken back his kingdom. So he's forgiving what ails us, the sin in our hearts. He even goes on to say in verse 10, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he heals a man. The king is starting to take back territory. So it's no wonder we see the sequence of events right after the announcement that the kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. It's near and it's now. The king is pushing back against the kingdom of the evil one and he's creating these fears of the kingdom these these windows into the kingdom of god and he continues to do that today and will continue to do so until the kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of jesus christ who will reign forever and ever fully the kingdom advances today and so this is why jesus never defines it in a sentence because definition by its very definition is an attempt to understand something according to its limits, isn't it? We put words and we put a definition on something to to limit it, to define it. There are no limits to the kingdom of God. It is ever expanding until the day it encompasses the whole earth. Which is why one way Jesus describes the kingdom is as the tiniest bit of yeast. Those of you who like to cook, if you like to bake out there, raise your hand. You'll like this. Nobody raised their hand. We won't have any church bake sales. I guess that's what that means. But one way Jesus describes his kingdom, it says the tiniest bit of yeast added to like 50 pounds worth of flour. Because it's, and it works its way through all the flour. A small beginning expands its way outward through a large quantity. Jesus Christ enters the world humbly but his kingdom cannot be stopped. In fact, Jesus never calls himself king. He comes in like that little bit of yeast. But it becomes obvious that he is king. That's how he works. He wants us to know him, to love him freely. And so he comes into our lives humbly. And we enter the kingdom that way too. Not through fanfare or some big bang, but through... The weakness of the message of the gospel. So number two, what we see here is how to enter the kingdom. How is that? Repenting and believing, or, or more accurately here in the Greek, I think, be- repenting and trusting in the gospel. Giving your life, trusting your life to the gospel. How do we do that? How do we, what is trusting the gospel? That there is a good and glorious one, a monarch, one who has created the universe as his kingdom. And he's made everything in it for us. For us, the crown of his creation. For us to enjoy. But each of us has decided, I want to rule. I want to reign over my own life. This impulse, these actions called sin, King is so good and glorious and perfect. He must banish sin from his presence, which means he must banish us from the kingdom. But a now far-off king who seems like fantasy comes to us, walks outside of the kingdom in this respect, walks, comes to us in robe and sandals and he invites us back in. Though he has been the perfect subject, he volunteers to take upon himself the punishment for treason. Also we can enjoy life under the, the rule of a good king and belong to his realm even as we live in this one. To paraphrase John Stott, the essence of sin is that we human beings are substituting ourselves for the king while the essence of salvation is the king is substituting himself for us. Let me say that again. The essence of sin is that we human beings are substituting ourselves for the king. The essence of salvation is the king is substituting himself for us. That's a glorious message. So trust in this gospel. But also, there's repentance. It's a church word. You've heard it before, maybe, if you've been in church for a while. First thing I want to say about repentance is it's both the first step and the last step of the gospel. First step and the last step of the gospel. In most contexts, the word repentance means to turn. So when you read it actually in the New Testament, in the context, it's talking about to turn. You recognize that the way you've lived your life is treason towards the king. And so you turn back to the king for a merciful solution. If you've betrayed the king, ha ha, I recognize I've rebelled against the king. I didn't even know it. What'd you do? The only option is, because you live in a monarchy, is to go to the king begging, asking him for a solution. So that's one sense of, I was wrong, how can I make it right? But repentance is also the follow-through. After hearing the gospel message, following through it, it literally means, repentance means uh, a transformation of attitude and thought and perspective towards life, which you can't do on your own. If you were to repent and, and change everything before trusting in this king, and this gospel message, that means you're supposed to clean up your life before trusting Jesus. And that's impossible. That's what Jesus has come to do, to enter to your life and, and sort of clean it up. So having been forgiven by the king, though ill-deserving, and you experience this forgiveness time and time again, you want your life to look transformed, to look different. So with God's help, you slowly but surely transform, you repent. So repentance is both that initial turning. I recognize I'm wrong, I need help." but it's that continually recognizing you're wrong and need help throughout your life, receiving the forgiveness of Jesus and that transforms you. And in that sense, you also repent. It's the message of the kingdom. How do you then advance the kingdom? And the goal with all this? of all of this then once you trust this king that he's good to run your life has your best interests in mind the goal then is to join with jesus to see more people and institution and spheres submit to jesus rule to submit to the rule of king jesus People, institutions, fears of influence, submit to, to King Jesus. How do we do this? We see three ways here in this brief passage. It's only two verses, but man, it's like the whole message of the coming of Jesus. For we, we, we join with Jesus in advancing the kingdom by proclaiming and living the gospel. That's what Jesus did, right? He came proclaiming this gospel and then he lived it to share the good news of the king who has freely come to pay the treasonous debt that each of us owes. Sharing that with others. There, there is no shortcut to that, friends. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to be one of those people who just lives it out. No, 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 no. You want to be in the kingdom. You want to be a loyal subject who submits their life. You have to speak. You've got to tell others about this good news. Or else how good is it really to your life? And then you do have to live it out. Act like the king by doing acts and deeds that resemble his freely giving of yourself. I'm going to give you an example of that in a moment. We also advance the kingdom. Well, I should say it this. Way. Where, where does God typically advance his kingdom? This is the next question I can ask. Where does he do this? Typically, it's amongst the least likely people and places. Typically. Jesus came into Galilee, we're told here. This is a small detail, but an important one. Not only his main message here, but most of his kingdom ministry took place not in the most likely place, which would have been the religious centers of Judea and Jerusalem. That's where the action was at. The temples, most of the synagogues, most of the scholars of the day, the center of the Jewish evangelical world, where it was. He started his ministry in, the, in Galilee, the northernmost part of Israel, which was always the first to be raided by surrounding nations. So it was kind of seen as like a necessary place to endure initial suffering, but it was always the buffer, right? Only important because you're the first to endure suffering if other nations come and invade us. It was seen as a backwater then and backwards place. Inhabited by the uneducated, the simple, the blue-collar, Galilee. But not only does Jesus spend the bulk of his ministry there, Galilee is where he gathers his beleaguered disciples after his death and resurrection, and he recommissions them for ministry. Where? In Galilee. But wait, what about Jerusalem? The temple? No, Jesus goes to unlikely people and places. The New Testament hints This is how the kingdom is spread and where it's spread in the book of James. Speaking of favoritism that we often show as Christians, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Ah. Poor in the eyes of the world? Those who have no influence, no currency, social or otherwise? That's the kingdom of Jesus always flipping it upside down in terms of how he advances his kingdom. I remember serving in a fantastic ministry called Young Life. Young Life is a ministry whose aim was to reach out and love unchurched teenagers for Christ. Fantastic ministry. And I was a leader there in college and serving high school students. Um, And each leader was typically assigned a school this is not just an American ministry, by the way, it's international. You're assigned to school, and one of the unwritten strategies for advancing the kingdom in each school was to target the popular kids and win them to Christ. It was always kind of said in circles, like people would whisper it to you, your, you know, your director and kind of the person in charge, like, yeah, you might want to like, go to the football games, talk to the football players, talk to you know, these sort of things, talk to these people. Because the idea was, if you could win them to the Gospel, then the Gospel would really have influence because you got the influential people. For all the things I've loved about Young Life, I, I will say this, that strategy goes against everything we read about in the Bible, about how God advances His kingdom. Throughout the Bible, God chooses the least likely people to do His greatest work. Over and over again. He chooses the humble and the willing. People who are like, "Ah, really? Uh, God, I stammer. Not really a good leader. Do I have to do this? (laughs) I mean, I'll do it. But really, there are lots of other good candidates out there. Which should be encouraging to us. If you ever think to yourself, man, why me? God says to you, exactly. Exactly. The first step though, in terms of where to do kingdom work, is to rid of the first two or three people who come to mind as having the greatest potential in the kingdom. First people, if I say, who has the greatest potential for the kingdom that you know in your head? Go, first two or three people. Just now dump that from your mind (laughs) and replace them with the last two or three people you even think of in your life, in your work, in your church. The second step is then to pray, plan, and go to those people with the message of the gospel and with the act of the gospel. You know who those people are. They're the most overlooked, the most ignored, the most neglected. It might be you're clicking on our website and saw a picture of the Georgetown primary kid. Go to him. God will exercise his influence through such as those. It might be a, maybe a helper or a cleaner. You've hired part-time to maybe clean your condo or apartment. I don't know. Go to such as that. Love them. Invite them. Spend time with them. It might be in the church. Because not everyone who goes to church is yet submitted to the king. <clears throat> and, you know, of course, you, we all approve, I hope you approve, of going to a church with a wide variety of Persons. Right, all these people from different nations gathered together. We love that. But we're happier to have a certain type of person in our community group, if we're honest. A certain type of person is your partner in children's ministry. Oh, I want to work with that person. Or a certain type of person dining at your dinner table on the one free night of your week. Forget for a moment praying, planning, and inviting those people. These are your favorites. God wants to advance his kingdom through the least likely and intends to do that. I promised you an example of sharing and living the gospel, and it's among the the unlikely people and places. My good friend Terry Howard, she gave me permission to share this. Many of you know Terry as a, as a friend, you know her and call her a friend. She loves Jesus and brilliantly ma- manages gas stations. She has gone out of her way to freely provide her employees with free career development education courses, calling it a Career Ready 101 in partnership with the Cayman Islands government. If her employees wish to become doctors or lawyers or accountants or whatever, providing a starting point for them to get education and for free. And I know, for instance, she has done so freely and at cost to her and her business. But in doing so, demonstrating the gospel. And she gets to share the gospel when asked, why does she do this? And she further submits, as much as she can, her business to the king. This fear becomes further ruled by the king. But let's cut the pretense in the bowl for a minute, if I might. Who else is thinking about gas station employees? Right, this is a place where God's going to work his kingdom and advance it, The person who might pump my gas. When you say, man, that gas station employee has potential. I see it in them. Who says that, really? Thankfully, Terry Howard does. Provides an example for us all. Truth be told, not one of her employees has taken her up on this offer. But that doesn't mean the kingdom hasn't advanced. How do you think I found out about her gospel demonstrating kingdom advancing act? through one of her employees. The message and the act of the gospel is influencing her workplace. It's making inroads there. Finally, the kingdom advances with suffering. Another little detail in this passage we might overlook, but it opens telling us that Jesus waits to announce his kingdom after John the Baptist was arrested. And eventually, by the way, beheaded. We find out in Mark 6 that John shares truth with a man who wants to run his own life and be a greater king than the king of kings. And John suffers for it. If you live out and demonstrate the truth of the gospel towards others, giving freely with no strings attached, you will be suspected of having ulterior motives. Why does he do that? Why is he nice? There must be something in it for him. Believe me, I know that as a pastor. Always, oh, you know, what's to build his church. Blah, 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 blah. get that. If you proclaim the truth of the, the gospel, you'll be accused of being exclusive as you say there's only one way to God. Your message will be dismissed because there's no room to take credit in the gospel. It's a free gift. It's a message that says, I can do no right. I need the rightness of Jesus. People don't want to hear that message. They don't get to take credit in their own salvation. In their own eternity, you'll suffer for living it out and sharing it. Every time you share the gospel in word or deed, kingdoms are colliding. One based on greedy motives, one based on inclusive do-it-your-own-thing, do-your-own-thing methodology that allows for a person to take more or less credit for himself or herself based on their performance Versus a kingdom based on selfless motives, a methodology of total reliance upon one way, and that way is Jesus, and allows no credit to be taken by the person who enters the kingdom. They come gratis, for free. So kingdoms collide. And so we were told in Romans 8, 16 through 18, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if we are children, we are heirs. You hear that? Heirs of a king, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Provided we suffer with him. One of my favorite writers, the 20th century uh, South African novelist named Alan Payton, most famous for his um, novel, Cry the Beloved Country. In another one of his novels, Ah, But Your Land is Beautiful, he tells a story of Robert Mansfield, the headmaster of a school in South Africa during the days of apartheid. When Mansfield's school was barred from competing against a black school, he finally, having expressed reservation, he finally takes a stand against apartheid, and he resigns from his post. A friend said to him, You know you will be wounded. Do you know that? Mansfield replies, pointing to heaven, when I go up there, the big judge will say to me, Where are your wounds? And if I say I haven't ha- I don't have any, he will say, Was there nothing worth fighting for? I couldn't face that question. Friend, Christian citizen of the kingdom, by the wounds. Of Jesus Christ, where are your wounds? Where are your wounds? Fight. Fight in the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let your motivation be even the possibility of advancing the kingdom and the future glory you will forever share with King Jesus, provided you suffer with him. Let's pray. Father, are thankful for these two verses because in them is the message of the book of Mark and the kingdom of God come in Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful that you didn't remain in heaven over a kingdom in charge of a throne in the heavens, but you appeared in a robe and sandals on this earth, humbly, so we might get to know you. So we might trust in this gospel message, which might seem like weakness, like craziness to other people, offensive to other people, but we know it's the power of God and we know that it saves. Father, I pray this morning for those who have yet to submit to the king, that they would, that they would see that he, this one monarch, has their best interest in mind and that he is worthy and good to run their life. Father, for those of us who've already trusted that message, Help us participate with you in advancing the kingdom. Being bold enough to share the message and live out the message. Father, help us also have the courage to advance in unlikely places, the Galilees of our world. With so many white collar among us, we're afraid to do. What will that look like? Give us the courage to get down, to humble ourselves. Share the message of the gospel with the least, with the unlikely. For we ourselves are least and unlikely, Lord. And finally, Lord, help us be willing to suffer because the glory we'll share with you is far greater. In Jesus' name, amen.